Well, if I would have been sitting there and had my back to them, I would have bet the farm that there was more than nine of them, right? That was pretty good for nine folks. And uh, if you're here and you've got your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open it to the book of Acts, chapter 6. As you know, we've been marching through the book of Acts. Uh, we'll do a little bit of uh, review to catch you up to where we are. But before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for all the blessings that we have in him. And Lord, we thank you that we can meet here in this room free of persecution this morning. Lord, we pray that you would do great work amongst us. Lord, I pray that you would feed your people now. And Father, I pray that you would use me to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 6. And just want to stir you up by way of remembrance. Luke starts the gospel of Luke walking you through Jesus' life, Jesus' birth, his life. His death and resurrection. You get to the book of Acts. And it's time for the gospel to be taken to the ends of the earth. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, comes to the disciples. And he tells them, that's the twelve. And he tells them to stay here in Jerusalem. Until you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And to the uttermost part of the earth. And so... We've been following through the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit has been on the apostles. It's been on the other disciples who have been putting their faith in Christ. And people have been coming to faith exactly like was foretold in Acts 1.8. You'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And there's been a couple different places where numbers have been given. And so you have about 70 folks in the upper room there at the end of Jesus' life. Excuse me, after Jesus' resurrection. You have two or 3,000 being saved after Peter's first sermon. Then you have... Two or three thousand more being saved after another sermon. And it, there's several places where it just says, and more were added to their number daily. So now we pick up in Acts chapter 6. And by this time, there's estimates of twenty-five to 30,000 believers in Jesus Christ at this time. Male believers in Jesus Christ. I have no way of knowing. That's what the, that's what the smart folks say, okay? And so it's just a guess. This is, <clears throat> excuse me. Acts chapter 6 is estimated to be about two or three years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just to kind of give you an idea time-wise where things are. So what's been going on is that Satan has been attacking the church. He's tried to attack the church from the outside. The religious leaders have told the apostles, don't speak or teach in that name anymore. They threaten them, send them out. That doesn't work. Then he brings in lies within the church, Ananias and Sapphira. That gets dealt with by God and that those who were lying are killed right there on the spot by God in a judgment of sin. And so the church is purged from within. Then the religious leaders get the apostles together again and they jail them. An angel breaks them out of jail. They begin teaching and preaching again. The religious leaders call them in again, threaten them not to teach and preach in Jesus' name, and then they flog them. Okay, that's 39 beatings with a leather strap that has about seven tassels on it and bones on the end. So this is this is a beating that is is not anything like you got when you were a child. This is a beating that was 40 lashes was meant to kill you. They give you 39 just shy of killing you. This is a very inhumane thing that's been done. And none of this is slowing down the progression of the gospel. It's continuing to go forth to the ends of the earth and great signs and wonders are being done through the apostles. And the Lord just keeps adding to their number. And so what I want you to see here in Acts chapter 6 says this. Acts chapter 6 verse 1. It says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, keep in mind, that's not the 12 disciples increasing in number. If you were a follower of Jesus at this time, you weren't called a Christian by the church. We talked about that a year or two ago. You were called a disciple. 
And so the word disciple isn't just for those 12. The word disciple is anyone who's a learner or follower of Jesus is called a disciple. And so this group, this the early church, is growing in number. The disciples are increasing in number. And a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So this is where we are. The church is two to three years old. If you remember back when we read about Ananias and Sapphira, people are selling their goods, they're selling land, and they're taking care of the poor and the needy among them. Right? That's what the early church is doing. They're taking care of their own. They don't have a government welfare system at this time. If the church doesn't take care of you, you, if you're a widow and can't provide for yourself, you starve. If you're an orphan and you can't provide for yourself, you starve. There's no backpack program at schools. There's no free lunches. This is, if you can't make it, you die. And so the church is taking care of the needy amongst them. And so there's people who legitimately need food. And I want you to see who these people are. These are people, are Hellenistic Jews, and they're native Hebrews. And so these are all Jewish people, okay? They're people who would congregate at the temple to worship, but there's, there's, a, there's a difference in the two. The Hellenistic Jews are Greek-speaking Jews. These are Jews that would have been part of what's called the dispersion, or your, in your Sunday school book, you may have seen it called the diaspora. Jews that have been removed from Israel, and they're out in Greek-speaking areas, and they come back to the temple to worship. Okay, because if you're a Jew, you have to come back to the temple to worship. And so they, they don't live in Israel. They speak Greek and they're other Jews. Now you have the native Jews who are living in Israel. So there's these two groups of people. The native group, the native Hebrews would have been the larger group. The Hellenistic Jews would have been a much smaller group. And so now people are bringing their offerings. They're giving it to the apostles. The apostles are distributing it out and they're meeting the needs of the people that are in the early church. And so now there's a problem. This is a legitimate problem, right? This isn't there's a smell in the sanctuary problem, right? This is this is a legitimate problem. This is a, this is our widows are hungry and they're not getting food. Money is being given and it's not being distributed everywhere that it's needed. Your widows are eating, our widows are going hungry. Legitimate problem. Everybody would say Right now, think about whatever problem you have. Is it as big of a deal as your widow mother not eating? Thankfully, probably not. And so this is a problem. And now they need to address it. And so this is what they do. This is Acts chapter six, verse two. So the twelve, that's the twelve apostles. They summon the congregation of the disciples and said, they get the whole gang together and they're going to they're going to see this complaint out. It's not desirable for us. The apostles say, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. So the apostles look at the situation. There's widows that aren't getting food. They know that they've been commissioned by Jesus Christ to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And now we have a problem on our hands that some widows aren't eating. And these apostles realize That it would be tragic for us to stop the ministry of the word, the ministry of the gospel going to the ends of the earth, just so someone's grandmother can get some food. And so they're not making light of someone who's not eating. What they're realizing is that the task that they've been commissioned with by the risen Lord Jesus Christ is of different importance. And it can be handled by someone else and they can stay focused on the mission that God gave them. You following me? And so this is what they do. 
This is Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we, whom we may put in charge of this task. When we finish up with this passage, we're going to come back to that and spend the bulk of our time there. And so, therefore, verse 3, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. Verse 4, but we will devote, that's we apostles, 12 apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So that's the plan. The apostles realize that the Lord is doing great signs and wonders amongst them. The gospel's going out to the broader parts of Jerusalem. It's getting ready to go out to the rest of the nations. And they say, listen, we need to keep doing what we're doing. We've been commissioned by God to do this. But these widows need to eat also. So choose seven men from amongst you. And we're going to put them in charge of this task. Now, often we've said before, we haven't said it. I've heard it said before that these are your first deacons. Actually, the word deacon isn't used anywhere in the book of Acts. The word deacon's not used at all in the book of Acts. The word ministry and servant is, these men are going to serve, but they're not called deacon as in an office of deacon yet. That's going to come later in Timothy and Titus. They're going to flesh that out. But here you have men who have to meet these characteristics, and these seven men are going to fix this problem of these widows not eating. Verse 5. So the whole church is together. Verse 5, the statement from the apostles found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip, don't know that word for him. I don't actually know most of their names. So go through them. Prochorus, Nicor, Timon, like the Lion King. That's funny. Parmenius, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And so they picked seven men full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, of good reputation. And these men are going to fix the problem. And if you'll notice, these men don't have Hebrew names. You notice that? Have you ever in your life reading through the Old Testament seen a man named Nicholas or seen a man named Parmenius? These are all Greek-speaking names, Hellenistic names. And so what they did is they realized that the problem is that these Hellenistic Jews widows aren't getting their food and so they pick men who are from hellenistic descent and they're going to look out for the ladies so nobody's purposefully overlooking these ladies they just happen to be part of a minority that's getting overlooked and so what they do the people are gathered together they say well since it's your women being overlooked you will point your men over them to make sure that your women are getting fed it makes perfect sense and so this Statement finds the blessing and the approval of the whole congregation. And so they bring all these men, these seven men, before the apostles. And they pray and they lay their hands on them. And this isn't like a, an ordination. This is, this is very similar to when Moses puts his hand on Joshua and prays for him. There's a delegation of responsibility being given to those who are being prayed for. It's an Old Testament thing. It's very common to lay your hands on someone pray for them, and then that responsibility delegation goes to those men. So they lay their hands on them, and they pray for them, and these men now are going to take care of those widow women, crisis averted. Amen, right? This is a good thing from the early church. Now, I want you to see a couple things that they did really well. They complained to the right place. It doesn't say that they went to the barber shop and complained doesn't say that they went to town hall and complained. doesn't say that they were all complaining all of these other places, but they took their complaint 
to the right place. I heard a complaint last night. Has nothing to do with the church. Had everything to do with the ballpark, right? There was somebody who had a complaint. They brought it to me. They didn't bring it to me. This is a a follower of Christ. They didn't bring it to my wife and I for us to do anything with it. They did it so that we could give them some sort of godly wisdom in what to do with that complaint. Okay? Their complaint doesn't go any farther than me and my wife. It's not my complaint. They were looking for advice. Right? Sometimes you'll have a complaint. And sometimes you'll need to do something with that complaint. And sometimes you'll need to go to someone. You hearing me? Someone. And ask them what to do about it. I've got this complaint. What do I do? And you hope that that person gives you godly advice for what to do with that complaint. I'm going to give you godly advice for what to do with your complaint. Whoever the complaint is against, go to the individual that's most apt to deal with it. Or the person you have a complaint against and settle it with that individual. So there may be someone you need to get advice from. Then you go to the person that you have a complaint with and you give them the complaint and you settle it mano a mano. Don't you think that Satan would have loved it if these people that had the complaints would have gone all over the place complaining? Don't you think they would, Satan would have had a heyday with that? But I want you to see that this complaint seems to be confined within the proper channels and the complaint gets dealt with in an efficient and an effective way. Because nobody in the early church wants to see widow women going hungry. You want the widows to eat. And there's a good chance that any complaint that you've ever had within the local body of believers, that nobody wants it to exist, right? We all are in agreement that Jesus Christ came to this earth to save sinners, and we want this gospel to go to the ends of the earth, right? That's it. So we don't agree. That would be a good time to smile and maybe give a little head nod just so we know we're on the same sheet. And so, like, we all agree on that. And we want whatever problem ever arises, we want it to go away in an efficient and an effective manner so that the gospel can continue going to the ends of the earth and great signs and wonders can be done through our church. Not in the way of miracles, but in the way of serving our community, ministering to our community, and doing great things for the sake of the gospel. Amen? So, I want you to see that it's possible for a church to handle complaining in an effective and an efficient way. An inefficient and ineffective way would be for someone not to have the courage to go where the complaint needs to go, but to go to everyone else instead. That would be a negative thing to do. And so here we have the statement, the apostles came on the scene. This is verse 4. I'm going to backtrack a little bit to get back, get the wheels back on the track. Verse 4. But we, the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement, verse 5, found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and those other six guys, verse 6, and they brought before the apostles, they brought these before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them, verse 7, and listen to this. This is, there's been a problem, there's been a complaint, the complaint has been handled impeccably, and listen to what happens when it when the complaint goes to the right place. It gets handled in the right fashion. It says in verse 7 that the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Gang, it's often been said of trouble and conflict. 
that you're either in it, you've just come out of it, or you're fixing to go into it. Okay? That's what they say. There's three things that are a fact about conflict. And this church has handled conflict perfect. And listen to what happened after they handled it perfect. This is fabulous. Acts chapter 6 verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, the outside world is looking at how the church handles conflict in and of itself. They're looking. And brothers and sisters, if the church can't handle conflict rightly amongst themselves, they'll never want to come in and be a part of what the church is doing. You can get your heart's share of conflict at the ball field. You don't have to come to the church and get it. You can fish on Sunday morning. You can hunt now on Sunday morning. You can go to the beach on Sunday morning. You can get away from people. And you cannot have conflict. And listen to this. It's not just that the word of God is spreading and the number of disciples are growing. It's that even a great many of the priests are becoming obedient to the faith. Now, this isn't the high priest. This isn't the Sadducees, Pharisees, all of these folks. This seems to be more of your rank and file priests who are going to be at the temple ministering, doing the Judaism thing. But the early church is still meeting at the temple and on the outskirts of the temple. And it seems that the priests are seeing something different about the early church. Okay, And they're being converted to the faith because the temple has a way to take care of widows, right? The temple has a way to take care of its own. But whatever the church is doing, it's doing it better than old school Judaism was. It's taking care of the people better and the priests are taking notice and even priests are being converted to the faith through the gospel and through the work of the apostles and the priests. Excuse me, through the work of the apostles and the disciples that are in the early church. And so, brothers and sisters, what I want you to see is when we do, when we do church right, when we do conflict right, the world around us takes notice, and they want to be a part of what we're doing. They really do. Now, I want to go back real quick, and this is where we're going to finish up. This is up to chapter 6, verse 3, and I want you to see the characteristics of these men that were chosen. Therefore, brethren, Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select from you, from among you, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So I want you to see a couple characteristics of these men. They're men from among you. And so these men are believers, right? These men are believers, which is two qualifications. They're men that the apostles told them to choose, and they're from among them. They're a part of the church. They're believers. So you've got male believers that they put in charge. Of good reputation. Now, what sort of good reputation do you think they're talking about? Not just a good reputation in town, but a good reputation within the church as well. The, when you get over to the book of Timothy and Titus, and you're looking at requirements for deacons, I just told you that that's not what we're setting up here. But when you look at requirements for deacons, it's men who aren't double-tongued. And so you want men who are going to be the same way in the community, and they're going to be the same way within the church. Look at this. So they're male, they're believers... They have a good reputation. They're full of the Spirit. And they're full of wisdom. That's five things. They're men. They're believers. They have good reputation in and out of the church. They're full of the Spirit. And they're full of wisdom. And I want you to see a characteristic of men who are full of the Holy Spirit and men who are full of wisdom. You ready for it? I've given you this short list before. Do you recognize this right here? 
Remember a while back? You see, you don't just get to forget about sermons. Like you gotta, you're supposed to remember like all this information as we go along. You remember when we walked through the characteristics that Jesus laid out for a disciple? You remember that? There was 10 of them. This is another good time for like a smile and a head nod. So I know you remember. All right. And so I should look at you more, Bessie. I appreciate that. Jesus says in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, he says, go there, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. And so characteristic of a disciple is someone who is able to teach someone else all the things that Jesus commanded. And when you're able to teach someone and do the things that Jesus commanded, it's evident that the Holy Spirit is all over and in your life. Because you can't obey everything that Jesus commanded you without the help of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's impossible. Listen to this list. This is Luke 9, 23. You don't have to turn to these. I've got some sheets printed up that you're welcome to to look at when you go home. Jesus says this, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. This is a command of Jesus. This isn't a suggestion of Jesus. This is Jesus is saying, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Surrender. This is Luke chapter 14, verse 33. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. So Jesus isn't commanding that you sell everything you have and give it to the poor. But if everything you own doesn't belong to God, you can't be a follower of Jesus. This is straight out of Jesus' mouth. Followers of Jesus hear his voice. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. These things that Jesus has commanded, brothers and sisters, are impossible unless you're full of the Holy Spirit equipping you to do the things that Jesus has commanded you to do. Jesus, therefore, John 8, 31. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word then you are truly disciples of mine. Luke 5, 27. He said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and rose and began to follow Jesus. John eight twelve. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. This is an example, all of these verses. People that are full of the Holy Spirit embody these verses. They've cast aside the cares of this world and they're living for another world that's not their own. Following me? It goes on. John 13, 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 12, 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So a characteristic of someone who's full of the Holy Spirit is that at times when they stop and they look around, they realize they're exactly in the middle of what God is doing. Right? Because if you're abiding in Jesus, you're naturally going to be where he's at work. If you look around and Jesus isn't doing anything around you at all, there's a good chance you're not abiding in Jesus. You may not be as full of the Holy Spirit as you think you are. And so get into this word Obey it and do the things that Jesus has commanded you to do. Here's the other one. There's two more. Matthew 4.19. And he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. 
John 15, 8, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And so what you're getting ready to see is that this first man that was listed to solve the problem of the widows not getting food. This is a man, Stephen, who's getting ready to preach a lights out sermon and he's going to die at the end of it. That's a man full of the Holy Spirit that in the face of immediate death preaches the word of God in an unashamed manner. And he dies for it. That's a man full of the Holy Spirit. That's a man who's a fisher of men. He's preaching and proclaiming the gospel to people. He's not doing it in a church service like I'm doing now. He's standing before a group of religious authorities because in his private life, he won't stop sharing the gospel. Right? He's not a, he's not the pastor of a church. He's a regular guy in the church who's full of the Holy Spirit who's doing great things for the Lord. He's bearing fruit. And so what I want you to see is that that's an example of someone whose life is full of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see this word wisdom also, and this one's short. Go back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Oftentimes we talk about wisdom in a couple different ways. Most of you know the proverb that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? Everybody's familiar with that? The fear of the Lord's beginning of wisdom. James is going to say, if any man lacks wisdom, wisdom, let him ask of God and God will richly give it to him. Right? So we, we talk about wisdom in passing. But what exactly is wisdom? Can you put your hand on it? I want you to see that people who are full of the Holy Spirit, who are actively obeying the commands of God, they are the people who are called wise. Check this out. This is Deuteronomy. I know this is in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5. Moses is talking to the people. And he says this. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering, where you are entering to possess. Verse 6. So keep and do them. What is that? Keep and do the things that Moses and God have commanded you to do. Middle of verse 6. For that is your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples. You get that? I'm going to read it one more time because it's fantastic. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, verse 5, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and understanding. And brothers and sisters, I want to close with this. If you want to be wise, if you want to have understanding... You don't have to speak with fancy words. If you want to be wise and show your understanding, you have to keep the words of this book. It's that simple. Moses holds up the law and he says, this is your wisdom and understanding. Do this. Brothers and sisters, following Christ isn't rocket science. It's reading the commands of Christ and simply doing them in your life. And the word says that when we do that, we'll show our wisdom and our understanding. I wish that there was more of us who would open this book and do what it says. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray, first of all, that if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in you, that today would be the day that they repent of their sins and put their faith in you, that you forgive them and give them an eternal life in heaven. Father, I also pray that if there's any of us here 
who maybe need to repent of our sin and put our faith in you, that we haven't been living out your commands. Lord, I pray that today would be the day we stop trying to lead our lives ourselves, and we be wise and we follow your commands. Lord, I pray that you would do great things through us, great things with us. And Father, I pray that as we follow you, that the word of God would continue to go out from this place and that you would add to add numbers to the kingdom daily. And Father, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand with us for our hymn of invitation. It was great to see you guys again today. Hope that you have a great week. And uh, look forward to seeing you again as we get together. Dr. Tarkington, I'm going to ask if you'd close us with a word of prayer.